once you start thinking like I don't care what the position does that much because it doesn't, doesn't have a big impact on the results, that's when I was like, why are we even invested in that in that name? And Hello everyone and welcome to the Investing City Podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. On today's episode of the Investing City Podcast, we have Joe Frankenfield on, and Joe is a managing partner and portfolio manager at Saga Partners, and he is just a long-term fundamental investor, and they've had a great track record so far, so enjoy this one with Joe. We talk specific names, we talk his investment process, and I'm sure you'll learn a lot from this one. Enjoy. Okay, on this episode of the Investing City Podcast, we're really happy to have Joe Frankenfield on. So thanks so much for being here, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ryan. It's a crazy time and I'm excited to do this with you. It's my first podcast and I think what's a better time to do your first podcast than during a global pandemic? So <laughs> Exactly. That's, that's the attitude. Um, so just tell us a little bit about your background. How did you first get into investing? And so why don't we just start there? Yeah, I didn't really get too into investing until after college, but I knew I was always interested in business and uh, I studied finance in school and uh, didn't know what type of capacity I wanted to go into business you know, for my career. But uh, I was fortunate enough to get a job in banking and I was in the corporate credit underwriting group at a bank where we would analyze the risks of businesses and uh, do senior lending to them. And it was a great exposure to how companies thought and how they evaluated risk and made decisions. And it was actually, that was in 2010, shortly after the Great Recession. So a lot of companies were struggling with decreased demand and trying to pay down debt levels. So it was an interesting time. But um, when I really got into investing was shortly after school when I had savings where I really wanted to uh, figure out how to grow it. And uh, I've always been a big saver. And uh, before I graduated, I, I kept my savings in a, a, a savings account where you can probably at that time get five or six percent uh, interest on, <laughs> on just keeping it in an online savings account. But then after school, I was more interested in trying to grow that and, and compound it. So I think my first book that I read um, on investing after school was The Warren Buffett Way. And that kind of started me off on my journey of learning everything I possibly could. And like many people you probably speak to, it kind of turned a pastime into an obsession and I read everything I possibly could on the topic. And um, pretty soon after that, I, I kind of figured that's what I wanted to do with my life and make it a full-time profession. And I went through the CFA program and uh, I kept growing my, my investments and savings. And then I moved into a uh, role as a sell side equity research analyst and covered uh, transportation and logistics companies. And um, uh, at that point, I pretty much have formed my investing philosophy, being very, very long-term oriented, fundamental analysis, and sell-side equity research, at least where I worked, was a little bit more short-term oriented, where you're trying to uh, forecast what companies were going to earn on a quarterly basis to the share, you know, earnings per share within a few cents, and trying to predict how stocks would move relative either meeting or not made uh, not meeting expectations so that wasn't really I knew pretty early on that's not exactly what I wanted to do long term and it was only a matter of time where I was able to break out my own and kind of start my own portfolio and uh, around about four plus years ago I think I got to the point where I felt comfortable enough doing that both in where I was able to be financially independent and also felt comfortable investing other people's money and it's kind of how I broke off and um, started Saga Partners with my partner, Michael Nowacki. 
Yeah, so let's just use that as a jumping off point. You mentioned on the intro a global pandemic going on and you run a fund right now. So just tell us a little bit about the past few weeks. I mean, it's been absolutely crazy, but I just want to hear kind of your perspective and the steps that you've been taking. Yeah, and you know, we write quarterly letters to our investors, helping them understand our investing philosophy, but we really try to take a very long-term oriented approach and we always say that we're trying to look out 10 years and to understand how a company will look relative to competitors or how strong they will be positioned in their industry. And so what happens in the short term is hopefully uh, irrelevant, except for where the stock is currently priced at and what you expect it to do over the next 10 years. And we also say that we, we're not trying to time the market. I learned pretty early on that I'm very bad at trying to time the market, whether on an upswing or a downswing. And so I always say to any person, whether it's an individual or a, another type of corporate entity, always have enough cash to make sure that you're able to go through any chaos that might happen in the markets. And it's you can't stress that enough because you do not want to sell assets when they're depressed. And that's what we're kind of looking at many different stocks and potentially other assets. But uh, so when I think of money in the Saga portfolio, I, we really don't have a lot of cash uh, balances and we might have five, six, 7% of the portfolio in cash given if we're moving in or out of a position, which we don't trade very frequently. So even when, let's say we're sitting here in January, 2020 and the market was looking pretty frothy, uh, we wouldn't feel comfortable in selling positions because we thought there was going to be a huge correction or a huge crash. So we were fully invested going into this global pandemic. And you can even see it when it was spreading across Asia and moving to Italy and uh, Middle East that it, it looked like it was growing, but that's not a reason for us to sell stocks unless it does really impact the intrinsic value of the positions that we own. So I guess when thinking about what the current situation is with uh, coronavirus, there's two ways to think about it. One is from a global health perspective, and then the other one is how it might impact the economy and specifically the companies that we might own. And from the global health perspective, I mean, I don't have any great inside knowledge than compared to anyone else from what I just read the newspapers and trying to follow this day to day. And um, I was just talking, we're, we're like, we're not sure if everyone's taking like too much uh, action or too little action. If it's uh, trying to figure out if, basically putting everyone on house arrest is the right decision or if you just let it spread. And I think that it's because we just don't know what the repercussions are when it spreads. You see some death rates of being 1% or 2%, which is crazy if you assume that uh, a certain amount of the population might catch this and uh, heavily skewed towards people that have um, are elderly or have um, weaker immune systems. So hopefully, you know, society, a global society will figure out a way to either stop it or find a vaccine or hopefully prove testing. Um, so really, I, I really don't know what the health implications are. I do like statistics and I like numbers and uh, every day it seems like it, it changes with how fast this is spreading. But right now, I think I'd say, I, so I live in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're looking at Ohio and I think there's maybe one, been one death so far and uh, I think there's been maybe a couple hundred cases and that's probably um, not the right number because there's not enough testing to see everyone who actually has the coronavirus but uh, depending on what the death rate or how many people will actually die from this it's crazy you know we're talking about people dying which is a very serious thing that's why it's it's uncertain how bad this will be but um, as of now I think maybe what maybe 200,000 people in the world have tested positively positively for this and maybe 15 or so thousand people may have died. So it's, it's, I don't know, really to answer the question from health, I really have no take on it from an economic standpoint, obviously when the whole world shuts down, (laughs) it's uh, all business stops and this is going to cause some type of bad impact or poor impact. I mean, to the economy and the U S economy, this is, you never know what, the next recession is going to be and I would be very surprised if we're not in a recession because no one's working <laughs> and so uh, demand is down and how long this lasts as anyone guess and so when you think about that from looking at companies 
some may be impacted a lot more than others and obviously cruise lines casinos airlines hotels restaurants those are going to be heavily impacted by basically revenue is going to zero for a month or two or however long this takes um so if they were carrying heavy debt balances and their lenders or or banks aren't willing to compromise on their payments or their obligations then you can see a lot of bankruptcies and how that funnels through the rest of the economy is going to be interesting to watch. Um, I couldn't imagine, you know, people that are in the service industry where basically they say your income is going to be zero for the next month or two. I'm sure some people are facing that with, you know, if you're an hourly worker and you no longer are working, I would say that's going to have a huge impact and how that runs through the economy. But, it does appear that Fed and government are willing to do whatever it takes to try to stimulate the economy. And that has been the pattern, at least over the last 10 years, that there's been a lot of stimulus and who knows what that can lead to. And I, it's hard to tell if that's the right or wrong decision. I'm probably leaning that's the right decision because the downside of not helping these people um, that have no income and they still have bills to pay uh, is really, really bad. And the, the potential downside of, of just basically having helicopter money is higher inflation down the road, which seems like the government doesn't believe in inflation is possible. But uh, I'm biased towards helping the people that are really impacted by a shutdown of the entire economy. Now, when I look at our portfolio, every time we invest in a company, I'm always thinking, can this company survive a downturn? Can, in a worst case scenario, will this company be okay? And that's what, how we want to own these companies through a downturn. And, and we're trying to pick the, the highest quality companies within an industry or space relative to their competitors. So that way, even though I'm sure almost, I mean, almost every company will be negatively impacted by a recession or decreasing demand. There's a few that are counter-cyclical, but a lot of companies will see lower sales growth or declining sales and or earnings dry up. But the question is, how will they look on the other side when inevitably the economy is going to do better? And uh, and will there be fewer competitors because they went out of business? Will they get more business because the competitors weren't able to fulfill their their obligations to their customers or uh, demand from their customers? So that's what we're thinking about. And um, we really like to invest in companies that can survive almost anything. And, and of course, there's varying degrees of that. And, and if let's say there is a zombie apocalypse, I'm sure our companies might not survive that. So there's very varying uh, degrees of, of how bad this can get. And um, really, we'll just take it one day at a time. But we have not changed our portfolio strategy by any means just because of a potential one or two really bad quarters and maybe less much longer than that. It's, it's anyone's guess at this point. Yeah. So thanks for going through that. And you mentioned looking at companies that can survive basically anything. And I know you own a company called Carvana and I've spent a lot of the past month or so just looking at the company actually. And it's really interesting. So just maybe use that as a concrete example to kind of talk through how you're thinking about the company uh, looking out over the future. Yeah, Carvana, I would say of all of our holdings, and we that's one of our new purchases from uh, last year, it's probably the one that's more susceptible to a downturn because they are operating with losses right now. And so based, the investment thesis is that they will have growth and as they scale, they'll become profitable. And I still have high conviction that uh, during a downturn, they'll be able to get through a downturn. They have about $600 million in liquidity um, if you include the assets on that are for sale on their balance sheet, the loans that they hold on their balance sheet. And based on our prior to the coronavirus, you know, we were expecting them to get to EBITDA break even by the you know end of 2021, maybe 2022, based on what their growth outlook looked like for units. But I guess I'll back up and kind of give the investment thesis or what we were thinking with Carvana. And um, for those that don't know, it's an e-commerce platform for buying and selling cars. And with e-commerce, uh, it's many times it's a winner-take-all scenario, and it's because there's a lot of economies of scale with e-commerce. And if you look at Amazon, um, they're obviously a, the winner in the United States and many other parts of the world. But the, what e-commerce does is it really transitions 
um, the typical brick and mortar retail variable cost structure into a higher fixed cost structure. And what that takes is a lot of scale and upfront capital costs. So you could see if you like track Amazon going back to 1997 and 2000, there are a lot of investments in building the distribution centers, the transportation network, building inventory levels. And that takes a lot of capital up front. And then that's made up with volume later on, which then improves the cost structure relative to a brick and mortar store, which is highly variable because they have sales personnel. They have a lot more real estate costs and um, it's harder to scale a brick and mortar type of model. So Amazon is the clear winner in that space. And then there is room for verticals um, or segments of certain products. And that's where Carvana comes in with used cars. So if you're looking at the used car sales in that space in the United States, it's a highly fragmented industry. Uh, if there is one type of business model that's due for disruption, it's the used car dealership. And there's a lot of different potential theses why it's so fragmented, but a lot of it is it's very hard to scale a used car dealership. There, you can see there's maybe six other publicly traded used car dealers, and the way that their business model typically works is they make a little bit of money on brand new cars. If they did sell brand new cars, make a little bit more money on used cars, and then they make a lot of money on the services and servicing repairs or anything that needs to be done to a car. So the used cars is not a big profit center for these used, these car dealerships. So it's typically a bad experience on average. I mean, it's not always the case. And I'm sure there's lots of used car dealers that do great work and are, uh, customers are happy to purchase from. But a lot of times when you buy a used car, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. People on average do it every six to seven, eight years. and so you're not very accustomed to where you're buying a car. You have to do a lot of research up front. You don't know if you can trust the car dealer. You do research online and you kind of visit a lot of different um, car dealerships in your area. And hopefully you find one that you like and you try to you negotiate what's the appropriate price. You might negotiate the financing. And there's a lot of different parts of the process that you aren't sure if you're getting a good deal, a bad deal, and where you might be getting taken advantage of. Um, Carvana changes that they in several different ways, but they're basically providing, I'll back it up. So let's say you look at Jeff Bezos and he says three things that customers always want. They want cheaper prices, a better experience, and a lot of options. And in, in a typical brick and mortar store, it's very hard to do all three really well. A lot of times you have to compromise and maybe making a really nice experience and maybe you won't offer as cheap of products. And e-commerce, it's possible to do well at all three. And so with e-commerce, if you can centralize the inventory, a nationwide inventory, make it so that you can have this huge pool of inventory, there's a lot of options for potential consumers. Two, if you can change the cost structure where it's highly fixed, so it's a high operating leverage. And once you get past the point where you can be profitable, it, basically each incremental sale will drop to the bottom line once you build the infrastructure. So you're able to offer products, cars, at a much more attractive price. And three, it's the experience. If you can improve the experience, so you can trust a large company that has a name brand and has a reputation of providing a very good car and good service, and they, they deliver to your house. Those three elements are very powerful if you get them right. And that's what Carvana is trying to do. Of course, uh, there's a lot of controversy. <laughs> this is a highly shorted stock, and you read a lot of different articles of people saying that they should go bankrupt and they're never going to make money. The thing is, I think what people or investors can get wrong is they don't look at the unit cost. And I, I, I listened to a few of your podcasts um, in preparation for this, and I think what you had an investor on that was speaking to this as well. You have to look at the unit cost and what is the, uh, how much money they make and the variable and fixed cost within each unit and how you can scale these operating costs as they, they grow. And Carvana started in 2013, they went public shortly after that, I think uh, in 2016, and they've grown to be one of the largest used car dealers ever. I think if you look at the numbers of how many cars are selling at the high rate of growth, 
there's a demand out there for this. I think that they're making it easier and better to buy these used cars. And it's pretty clear that this is a model that the United States public of who want to buy used cars, they like this. It's a matter of, it's not a matter of demand, it's a matter of supply. And so Carvana is trying to build this infrastructure and there's a lot of upfront costs. And so now they're building these, these inspection and reconditioning centers, they're building the transportation network, they're building um, the inventory levels to be able to offer a, a good selection. And so that takes a lot of money. Uh, and they raise money different ways, whether it's through equity or debt, and, and they currently have operating losses. However, if you go quarter by quarter, you can see them scaling these operating costs. And uh, it, it just seems very clear that when you look five or 10, 15 years down that road, this is the best way to buy a used car. And I, I'm known for being fairly frugal. I'm pretty sure I don't buy new cars because you know everyone knows the second you buy a new car, you lose 20% of the value when you drive off a lot. So in let's say five or six years from now, when I'm looking to buy a new car, I can say with high conviction that I would use Carvana because I'm going to look at what's the best deal out there and most convenient deal and will likely have the car that I want. So that's the idea behind Carvana. And um, recently the stock sell-off has been significant and um, we first bought it uh, maybe early last fall. And um, we were, I had to, I have to apologize to you Ron, cause I know we were supposed to do this a couple of days ago. And, and I was during this market swings, day-to-day -day swings, I had to spend some time in figuring out how to reallocate some positions when the opportunities popped up. And I was digging further into Carvana to see what the opportunity presented itself at, with as the, the shares have fallen a bit. So we, we did increase our position there this week, actually. We trade rarely, so that was kind of a big move. But um, yeah, it's a great idea. The question is, will they be able to survive two quarters of maybe decreased uh, demand because everyone's sitting at home? There is risk that potentially they may not exceed their guidance and maybe they'll have lower growth this year. I would argue that the offering is is so attractive that but if they were looking for capital needs uh, they're going to be able to find the capital that that you know there's going to find they're going to find investors whether they raise debt or equity hopefully they don't raise equity at these these share prices but um you can make the argument that when everyone's locked up at their house and they you know people still buy used cars that this may boost demand for what their services provide. I'm not sure if people are still looking to buy used cars, but they definitely can't go to used car dealerships around the corner. So I think you have to take a step back during these, these crazy periods. And I don't have concerns about their liquidity needs in the next year or two. They have about $600 million in liquidity and they're probably losing maybe 30, 40, $50 million in EBITDA and interest expenses each each quarter so you can see what their runway is which is likely two years um before any huge impact on their demand but um it's interesting and it definitely is on the scale of um risk maybe a little bit riskier than some of our other positions that have net cash positions and that just you know are more mature companies and uh it's just on a, probably when you look at the spectrum of, of risk, it's a little bit higher, but the upside is is there, especially at least these stock prices. Yeah, thanks so much for going through that. I think, yeah, it's pretty interesting with raising equity and debt because the stock has come down, what, like 70% off mm -hmm. of highs. Do you think they would be able to raise debt pretty easily? I mean, it depends. They've gotten investors in different ways and uh whether it's through preferred equities um that well so they finance most of their inventory and also their ircs through um you know they have a borrowing facility uh for the inventory which is financed with pretty attractive rates and then for their inspection centers they usually do a sale lease back with that so that's where their capex goes as ircs primarily and then they have a vending machines as well and they signed, I believe, maybe three new IRCs, maybe four for this year, which all the financing was locked up for that. The concern is their operating losses and how long of a runway they have with you know, their operating loss. And they have enough liquidity to get them through uh, another year or two for sure. Um, and 
I would expect that the current situation uh, hopefully subsides or gets better within the next year. But um, yeah, I mean, if they do need to access the capital markets, I mean, they, I think there, there are people that would be willing to invest banks or, or potentially equity markets. Yeah, super interesting. So talking about the pandemic and all the craziness going on, I'm just curious because, I mean, a lot of fundamental long-term investors like Peter Lynch saying, if you spend 12 minutes on macro, you've wasted 10 minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so just kind of the question, how do you think about it from maybe like a medium term view? Would you what would you need to see to actually make a change in your strategy or would there be like nothing that you could see? And it's, you know, it's just all long-term. I think, I mean, macroeconomics has more to do with interest rates and foreign exchange and trying to figure out where those factors go. Maybe trying to forecast where uh, GDP might be in a year or two or three years. And, that doesn't impact how we think and we agree we obviously uh have a lot of similar views as peter lynch and he's impacted our philosophy i think when you need to start adjusting your thesis is if there are changes from your original expectations that are material and um we write a little bit about this but if it's if a small change in growth expectations or margins is going to impact your investment thesis you probably should move on to the next idea it's when there's longer term trends that really are materially different from what you thought. And we actually, we wrote about this in the last quarter letter. We, we invested in Under Armour and that's been a long term holding for us. And um, our expectations for that company did not meet what we originally thought. And it's because our investment thesis was potentially flawed. We, let, we thought the brand was more durable than it really is. And um, when you see that their pricing power isn't as strong as you thought there was, and it's not temporary, that's when you maybe start questioning your thesis. So eventually it's similar to maybe if you were into, if you were going to invest in a portfolio manager, like you agree with their philosophy, you agree with what they're trying to do, but after five years or seven years or 10 years, if they're not hitting the market, then why are you invested in them? And that's kind of how we think about with companies too, is that you have to give them the runway you have to give them the opportunity to perform but eventually you need the results if after 10 years you still don't beat the s&p 500 then why don't you just invest in the s&p 500 unless there is something that's really um, strange going on in the markets during that period of time that you can kind of explain but really uh, eventually you need results and we like to stick to our guns on our investment thesis we want to understand the weaknesses and we want to understand the short side of the argument and if we can understand that and we still have conviction, then, yeah, we think there's something potentially uh, attractive to look into further. But, um, but that's how we think about probably the macro and, and uh, macroeconomics. It's, we focus on the microeconomics. Totally. So, yeah, that's, that's really thoughtful. And do you have something where, for instance, with Under Armour, after five years, if it if it hasn't, the stock hasn't gone anywhere, will, how is your process to think about that? Would you just sell it or do you have like a predetermined date after three years if the stock's done nothing, we'll reevaluate? So how do you think about that? Well, we're constantly looking at our portfolio and I think there's a common question like how much time do you spend on your current holdings versus how much time do you look at everything else or your you know other potential opportunities? and. I would say I spend most of my time thinking about staring at the eggs in our basket, staring at our current ideas, whether I like, I like looking at new ideas. So yeah, we read every quarter update and all the transcripts. And then we read about all of our com company's competitors and we keep our thumb or thumb on the pulse of each of our companies. So we really understand the dynamics that are going on. And it's only when we feel conviction that the trends are going to be strong over the long term, but yeah, if, if you see material weaknesses in your thesis, and I think we we ignore the stock price, or unless it's we take advantage of it. So it's when we we look at the fundamentals of the companies and how they're actually performing, you know, their operations are performing. And I mean, after five or so years, if if it's way off, the operations are way off, and the stock price um, 
we'll see what the stock price does relative to the operating uh, fundamentals of the company, but it's really if the fundamentals aren't performing. We, we own stocks where the fundamentals have been strong and the stock hasn't uh, followed the strong fundamentals. And so we think it looks more attractive. And um, it's really about the cash flows that the company generates or really the potential earning power of the company. Gotcha. So how many stocks do you typically hold in the portfolio? Right now we have nine and we say we like around 10. Uh, we're not stuck to that number. We, But you know that's always been the case since I've started being really serious about investing. For some reason, I always have liked to hold around 10 names and I, I'm not sure why that might be the case. And there are many different styles and levels of concentration that people are comfortable with. But I find that when we do get towards more names and we have held, you know, 12 or 13 positions at a time or even got up to 14, just I always have that thought of why would I have number 14 when I would rather put, you know, add more to my best idea. And I always we rank our names based on what we think are the most attractive to the least attractive. And, you know, you can look at the weighting of our portfolio based on what our thoughts are on the attractiveness of each each holding. And um, I just find that if you start getting down to having 2% positions in your portfolio, you, I, I start thinking like, oh, it doesn't matter if it goes down 50% because it's, it's not that big of an impact on the portfolio. If it goes up 100%, like it has a small impact. Once you start thinking like, I don't care what the position does that much because it doesn't have a big impact on the results. That's when I was like, why are we even invested in that, in that name? And that's just how I think. And I'm probably overly influenced by Buffett when he says, you know, he would probably the positions and be happy with that. And I always just think about concentration where, yeah, our portfolio is more volatile than the index, even though the index is pretty volatile as well these days. Um, but I think of it as having these private businesses. And if I had, let's say, five to 10 companies throughout the country and they weren't publicly traded, how and Another way I think of it is most of our businesses, the CEO is a manager, the manager has most of his net worth tied up into the stock. So is he worried about what his stock price does every day? It's probably he doesn't look at it every single day. He cares about how the company is performing over the long term. And he's not buying and selling shares daily. And he just is thinking about it as an owner. And so if you own five to 10 companies that are really high quality, on average, you should do really well. And Yes, we'll make mistakes. Maybe one will do really poorly, maybe two and potentially more three. But on average, if you have that many companies, they should do really well compared to if you had 20 or 30 or 40 companies and you get closer and closer to an index type of result. And our game is trying to beat the indexes by choosing a few very high quality companies. Yeah, I love that. I think I have nine in my portfolio too. So I, oh, really? I totally- well, there you go. <laughs> on board with that. Um, especially, yeah, I feel like if you're a long-term fundamental investor, just like you're saying, if you have 20 ideas, there's no way the 20th idea is going to be anywhere near your number one idea. Um, but right, just right. going yeah, up, I, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, like once you get to number 20, like I just, if you, a lot of people will say they don't know how number 20 will do relative to num- your number one idea. And in my head, if, if you had 20 ideas that you had no level of conviction on more in the, the top 10 versus the bottom 10, then you probably don't know the intrinsic value of those companies. So maybe it does make sense to complete, completely diversify. And if you think 20 really high quality companies, you don't know which one's going to do best, then that could be one strategy that works. But I always thought, you know, I like to rank my best ideas to my worst ideas and um, allocate the portfolio accordingly. Yeah. So let's talk about the ranking system. Is it purely based on intrinsic value, but obviously intrinsic value incorporates a lot of different things. Um, So just talk about that ranking system and does that directly affect the specific allocations? Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. It has everything to do with intrinsic value, but uh, intrinsic value is such a soft number and a gray number that you have to have a range of what you expect the company can do over the long term. But um, I always think about where I think the company will be in 10 years. And 10 years is an arbitrary number that we throw out there because we're just trying to get timing out of the equation. We're trying to focus more on the fundamentals and figuring out what the business will do over time. 
So I always think about where the company is selling today and then where I think a range of where it could be selling in 10 years from now. And you kind of have this range of expected returns. And I completely disagree with the idea of having a price target. If you think a company sells at $30 a share, that's the fair value and selling at 20, then once it reaches $30, it's fairly valued. I think in uh, compounded annual growth rates, you know, the CAGR, what the next 10 years will likely return. And I think about it relative to where the index is trading. So I think about where the S&P 500 and what the returns will likely be of the S&P 500 over the next 10 years. And then hopefully I can find ideas that will beat that if I held it over the next 10 years. And what that does is if I think a company is going to be a five bagger over 10 years or a 10 bagger over 10 years, like provides a CAGR and let's say it's a 20% CAGR. If it moves let's say the price moves up 50%. Well, all that does is that lowers that 10 year outlook a little bit by a couple percent each year. And the question is, it doesn't move up over, let's say it moves up 20% over the next year. And so then really it's following what your expectations are. And it's probably still might have a 20% compounded annual return expectation for the next 10 years. Now, 20% is hard to find and is a really attractive return if you can find ideas and if you, you can go back and look at all the companies that are currently trading in the United States or any public market, and you can look at what the return has been over the last 10 years. And there's very few companies that have the ability to do a 20% CAGR. But um, I kind of have a range of expectations. And then I try to see if I were to pay $5 billion for a company today, uh, what return would I get for that, that $5 billion investment today? So that's how I think about it. And, Stocks can move up and down 10%, and that doesn't really impact our long-term outlook because that's just a blip on the scale in the long-term of things. But once you know stocks might move 100%, then you start like, adjusting what your expected return is. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of going off of that, how do you think about selling? Would you, if valuation gets to a crazy amount, okay, maybe sell, but just talk a little bit since you're looking out 10 years and you're holding very few companies, you know them really well. So what would be something or a reason why you'd sell? Oh, we would sell if the return outlook becomes unattractive and we're always weighing our opportunity cost and we're always looking at what our next best idea is. And so, you know, if a company gets to the point where just the valuation doesn't make sense or we, we really can't get a lot of conviction on an idea, we would sell it. But a lot of times, you know, when we we're trying to take this long-term view, we, we really try to ignore the, the fluctuations in the stock market unless they're really material. And the past couple of weeks might be considered material in some cases. But, um, but it, stock really, if you're looking out 10 years, it really does have to move a lot. It has to double or triple or quadruple to make you really um, adjust your outlook. And uh, but if we, you know, a great example, there's a lot of different ways to value companies, but we're just trying to figure out the cash that can get returned to shareholders. And, and really, if the company is growing earning power over time, and a lot of our companies, and maybe this gets into the, the debate of growth investing versus value investing. And you know, for all the Warren Buffett followers out there, they say all investing is value investing. And, and we agree with that. And that's how our philosophy surrounds the idea. But where I think a lot of people that look at lower multiple stocks, trading at low multiples of earnings or book value or cash flow, the thing that they may be missing is that company never actually returns cash to shareholders. So if you're looking at a department store that's, you know, it's trading at four or five times its earnings, where it might still have debt, it might have real estate value on the book, uh, the balance sheet. But when is that company going to actually return that those earnings? So let's say it has a 20% earnings yield. Does that company actually dividend that money out? And a lot of times some of these companies are buying back shares in a declining business. And so that's still an overvalued company selling at a low multiple. You, can be, you could buy a company like Carvana that has operating losses, but once it hits an inflection point, it's, its earning power is going up as it's growing its units, uh, unit sales. So really it's growing its intrinsic value despite the fact that it needs cash right now to grow its infrastructure. And the idea is what type of cash will they generate in five or 10 years? And 
you look at some potential um, expectations or forecast, it could be earning a billion dollars in, in five or six years. And if it's selling for $5 billion market cap, uh, that's attractive if it still can grow at a high rate at that point. But um, uh, valuations, you know, it's tricky and you're just trying to make the best uh, judgment you can. But I guess to go even further, we're looking probably more at the competitive strengths of the business, which means that it can grow its earning power over time and trying to understand the competitive dynamics within the industry, which kind of helps you know in 10 years from now, it still has earning power. Totally. So just talk about competitive dynamics. So are you reading all the competitors' 10Ks? Are you looking at any alternative data sources? Like what are some of your favorite things to do to kind of understand the competitive dynamics? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, when we're learning about a company or even just tracking our holdings, yeah, we read everything we possibly can. And um, yeah, we want to read what the competitors are doing. We want to read about how they might get disrupted. We want to read about uh, what the management has done in the past. And I mean, the best way to start is, you know, if the, if the CEO writes a great letter and you can see over the past five, 10 or so years, what he said and if he, what he said comes true and kind of see his values and, and the company's culture. And that's so important to understand how a company thinks and breathes and, and lives and that what, what it's ingrained in its DNA. And then why, I mean, with any company that we look at, we always ask, why can't someone else do this as well? Why, when a customer is buying this product or service, they choose this company and not a competitor or alternative type of product or service? And most times we can't answer that question, but sometimes we can. Sometimes we can say they're a low cost operator or they or they have a better product that no one can emulate or replicate. And I think one of the really, you know, maybe underrated or best books I've read was, um, I think it was Bruce Greenwald's book, uh, Competitive, uh, Competition Demystified. And he, he talks about competitive advantages and he talks about why a company can earn a high return on invested capital because an all investment all that matters is how much money you put out today and what cash flows you'll get back in the future and what's the rate of return on that. And a high quality company is one that can either charge more for its product or service, they have a or they're a low cost provider and that, or they just are a capital light um, operator. So they have a high return on capital. So like for Facebook, they have a platform that's hard to replicate. They have a network effect. Competitors, can't copy what they're doing and is a very strong competitive advantage and it's a very capital light model that's durable and so you ask why does facebook earn such a high return on its capital why is it durable can someone and can can another platform come and disrupt them and so those are the questions that we think about um, but you're always asking why do their customers use the product or service and why can it be copied by someone else yeah, that's super helpful. So I want to go real quickly through just some like back of the napkin math for Carvana, because I'm really curious about how you think about your intrinsic value. Like you don't have to give us specifics or anything, but just talk a little bit about maybe just simple math of looking out in the future based on growth rates and then how you kind of think about the unit economics of that business. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, you can look at their historic operating results to kind of see what their historic growth rates have been. But I think, you know, you can take it from a bottom up perspective and a top down. And from a bottom up, you can see that, you know, they've been growing 100% a year. Um, and that's been a very strong trend. And if you look at the used car space, about 40 million units are sold every single year within the United States. And the question is, how much of that can go over Carvana's platform? And what are the competitors, where, where are they going to steal this business? And, you know, half, I forgot how many cars are actually sold through used car dealerships or private transactions. Uh, I forgot maybe 25 million cars. I, I forgot the exact numbers, but um, basically they're trying to steal share from existing brick and mortar used car dealerships and also based on this, the private transactions. 
so there's 40 million transactions. Um, they're probably currently oriented towards cars are less than 10 years old, which is about 66, you know, two thirds or 70% of the used cars sold are under 10 years old. And so we're thinking maybe, you know, 30, 25 to 30 million cars in the US that Carvana is really targeting. But if you look at the largest player in the used car space, it's CarMax, and I think they have just under 2% of the market share. So it's highly fragmented and that that demand is there that Carvana can take. I mean, they're basically trying to offer cars over their platform that are cheaper than a used car dealership that is convenient. So the idea is how much of that share can they take? And right now management thinks that they can current, it's very in the foreseeable future that they can get to 2 million cars. And the question is, can they sell 2 million cars over their platform and how long will that take? And how will, will their cost structure look at 2 million units? And they say that um, as they scale their fixed costs, as they build out their infrastructure, uh, they'll probably get to like 12% EBITDA margins. And maybe if you, you know, less depreciation on the cars, it might get to like 10% uh, margins. And let's say the average car price is $20,000. Um, you multiply that by 2 million units, you get a certain revenue, you take a 10% margin, and it's not inconceivable that they'll be have operating income in the billions. Um, and the question is, at 2 million cars, why can't they grow past that? Uh, once they build this infrastructure, you would think that as this company gets bigger and bigger, their competitive advantage only grows from there as well. They have the infrastructure, they have the utilization, and they'll be able to get cars to customers quicker, probably buy cars easier from customers, they'll have more inventory, so there's more selection. So as they grow, they get stronger. Um, but yeah, you run those numbers, and the question is how long will it take? And you know, right now, I think they grew 100% last year, They're expected to grow maybe sales 50% this year, and you can, kind of see what the unit growth would have to be to get to that point. Um, it's not inconceivable for them to have sell 500,000 cars probably by the year 2022, maybe even more. Um, and so, yeah, you kind of play around with the different growth rates and your expectations of what they'll earn as they scale their fixed costs. But um, yeah, you can see, see how EBITDA uh, grows once they get past a inflection point of, um, scaling their fixed costs. Yeah, that's super helpful. Thanks for going through that. And don't want to take up too much more of your time, but one last question that we love asking everybody yeah. is, what are some of your daily habits that have really contributed to your success? Well, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I tried to, I, I guess that I found this I found that I have about maybe five, uh, four to five hours of really productive work each day. And I think when I was younger, I'd always spend my mornings doing emailing or catching up on doing more admin work in, earlier of the day, which was my most productive hours of being able to think really well. And so, you know, I decided a while back that I need to spend that time thinking the most you know, at the best level I can, either by reading reports or digging through financials or just reading in-depth good stuff. And so I really think from when I get into the office at like 8 a.m. till about noon is I'm just trying to learn and, and use those productive hours to the best of my ability. And then I use the later hours after lunch when I'm you know trying not to fall asleep sometimes because I'm full or whatnot, trying to use those to do the work that doesn't take the higher level thinking. But um, yeah, that, that's helped. And I, Another thing that I think that's helped me is I read a I read the book Deep Work a while back and um, I had some good advice about we, how easily we get distracted and especially when you're dealing with the stock market you may look at where shares are trading and really the it's just noise and I learned that I need to keep my cell phone out of the room or office while I'm working because otherwise I find myself trying to get distracted I might look at stocks which just not how we think. It doesn't impact my long-term view, but you know, you're just bored and it distracts you and you're looking for a distraction. So I, if you keep your cell phone away from you out of the room, it's more likely I can stay focused for longer. So that's one little trick I try to use. 
Yeah, those are amazing pieces of advice. It's very true. Um, so real quick, going off of the eight to 12, you're just learning. Do you have a process for figuring out what you're going to be looking at the next day? Do you have like a running list of things that you're trying to learn about? Or how do you just keep that information coming so that you don't have to be searching for information? Or maybe you are searching for information just when you get in in the morning. Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't have a great answer for you because we have so much information. There's endless materials to read and it can get a little overwhelming. Uh, fortunately, my main job is reading. <laughs> it's, trying to, it's trying to learn and figure out how the world works. And I love that. But yeah, trying to figure out what is the highest quality information. I actually, you know, I think I like to put a time horizon or the time value on what I read. And, and I, I'm just... I love reading the Wall Street Journal. I love reading Barron's and I love reading these articles, but how valuable is that information and how long will it last? And it's interesting to go back to a couple of weeks ago and read articles and see how relevant they are. They really made an impact to your long-term thinking. And I find that a lot of it is just noise. And sometimes it's important. I love keeping updates on the companies I'm interested in doing and researching about. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do have a idea about what I want to learn. Sometimes it's about a certain industry or sector or a certain business model and sometimes a specific company I like to really dig into. And I have just a list of companies that I have always looked at from afar and I would love to like learn more about. And um, I think I know I read some of your work on your website and you do a great job of looking at business models and kind of looking at a bunch of different types of companies. And that's just a great way to learn whether I invest in these companies or not is to understand um, how different parts of the economy work. And uh, I find following some investors that share similar investing philosophy as me, that they often will post articles or, or links to things that uh, I think are interesting or, or helpful. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, you know, there's just a lot out there and you're just trying to figure out what's the highest value stuff to spend your time on learning about. Exactly. I'd say that's really the essence of investing. All this information, can I just distill it down into some insight? So once again, thank you so much for your time, Joe. Really valued this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Investing City podcast. It really means the world to us. And before you go, we have a proposition. So please leave a review on iTunes. It just would help us out so much. And if you do so, just email us. I left a review and we'll give you a gift. That's right. We'll give you a gift if you leave a review. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you.